what would be good news to the person standing right in front of me? And, and using their perspective as a, as a lens on how the gospel is going to sound to them, because it's going to sound different in a prison. It's going to sound different in a soup kitchen. It's going to sound different in a corporate boardroom. And sometimes it'll come as uh, grace, and sometimes it'll come as stinging prophetic rebuke. The, 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 the voice of the Lord will come at us in very different ways, depending on where we stand. Welcome, fellow traveler, to the Tent Talks podcast, where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social, and political imagination. Hello, fellow travelers, and welcome to the last installment of our first go-round with this docu-series idea around translation and interpretation. And uh, as I'd mentioned, uh, we're, we're, we're ending this off with uh, one of our favorites, one of our favorite guests, somebody who's an easy go-to that uh, if you've been listening to our podcast at all, you're very familiar with uh, with uh, Richard Beck. Uh, but if just as a quick byline, uh, professor of uh, psychology at Abilene Christian University, where he's the department chair, and he does a lot of speaking engagements and, and talks like this one, as well as being an author. One of his books, I know for sure, ties into what we're going to talk about a little bit, which is around Trains, Jesus, and Murder, the Gospel According to Johnny Cash. And, uh, you know, in the realm of context, in the realm of as we trans, as we go and understand these things, where we're coming from and what kind of gives us the, the our perspective is not only valuable to understand why we go through certain things or how we look at certain things, but also looking at others and where they look at it. And one of the areas that I've always could only sympathize at best when I read people like James Cone or, you know, learning about things like Johnny Cash and some of the things that he talks about is it always surprised me about the God, not surprised me, but impressed me around Paul, is that writing those letters from prison, you know, from a prison two millennia ago in that kind of environment, to have the context of joy and to write with such passion and grace in a situation that could only be you know, described as probably horrible at best. Uh, and not just then, but up until modern currency, if you listen to somebody like James Cone that says, you know, it's a really, the gospel is written for the prisoner, the gospel is written for the oppressed. And coming from a status of where I do, and I've mentioned this before, you know, privilege and upper middle class, and I've never been a prisoner. Uh, I was just joking, uh, if, it's, if, it's, if it can be called that, that the best I can do is, is argue about, you know, my time in the military, but it was voluntary and there was a day I could get out and it wasn't, and it's bare born fruit. Whereas I think we have an issue, especially in the Western world, and especially in the United States, around prisons and prisoners and incarceration and things of that nature. Uh, and then the other thing I wanted to, uh, is uh, him, he and I share a little bit of uh, space, a little bit, a little, a little bit of uh, uh, overlap around denominations around in the, what they, in the U.S., the, uh, what they call the Churches of Christ. And my personal church is going through a, a massive change right now, and he's, very, he's actually aware of it. We have somebody from his university that's helping us. And this question of, you know, are we here to save the faith? Are we here to self or save organizations? And what gets organizations and denominations like into that niche, that narrowness as far as like as they read things and go, okay, well, this means we have to be this way. And so now we define our lanes of how we're supposed to play and either come alongside or else you're not with us kind of thing. And so all that said, uh, as always, as always, Richard, we'd love to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us. And I'm looking forward to this conversation. Oh, oh, super. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be be with you. Yeah, let's talk about all the things. <laughs> we'll solve all the problems in 30 minutes or less, and, and off we go.
regards to prisons, you've done a lot of work with the prison ministry, prison system, and uh, with, with books like the one you wrote about Johnny Cash. Can you give us, in that, in that context of kind of to start us, like what got you started into the prison system? What got you, was it just natural or was it kind of by happenstance? And then kind of tell us a little bit about that origin story. Yeah, I actually, I've told the story in a couple of my books and the Johnny Cash one is uh, one of those places where about like 10 years ago, I was kind of at a crossroads of my faith, going through some faith struggles. And so I went out to the prison looking for Jesus. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 25. You know, if you visit the incarcerated, you will visit me. And that might seem strange. A lot of us think about prison ministry as I am taking the gospel into this very dark place. I kind of went with opposite motives. I went there uh, as a bit of a beggar and a spiritual seeker looking for Christ and incarcerated. And so I just put myself in that social location to see what I could learn and what I can experience. And God was faithful. Like I I've shared many stories with many audiences and in my writings about how the incarcerated in many ways saved my faith. And that connects a little bit with the Johnny Cash book, because the connection here for your audience is when you think about his live prison concert album at Folsom Prison and then his follow up at St. Quentin. The way I narrate that in the book is in many ways. Yeah, you can argue that what Johnny Cash was doing was pretty, pretty radical uh, pretty awesome, him going into a prison. But in many ways, the the reception he received from those audiences, which you which are captured in the audio of the live concert, is what made those concerts so iconic. And so, in many ways, uh, if you understand where Cash was in his career, because he was about to get dropped from his record labels, you can make a really good argument that. As much as he did for those inmates during that concert, their reception of him and the gratitude they expressed toward him and the enthusiasm they you can hear just fill those rooms, save Johnny Cash. And that's kind of my own story of, of how God comes to us in surprising locations, even amongst inmates and prisoners. From the very when when that happened, like when you're first kind of going there to say and you are feeling that, can you kind of take us through was it initially, did you really realize it right away or was it a certain event or a series of events or kind of what, what brought you over that precipice? Well, let's, I mean, let's connect it with, with, with hermeneutics, which is an interpretation, which is how we, how certain things in scripture come into our view, given the social location where you read it from. And, and I think that's the relevant thing. The Bible sounds different in a prison than it does in, in a suburban church. Um, it sounds different in the ears of the incarcerated, different readings, different textures, different emphases, different points. Uh, one of my favorite uh, books, titles and books, but the title is awesome by Bob uh, Ekblad, which is called Reading the Bible with the Damned. And there is a hermeneutical interpretive process about reading the Bible with the damned reading the Bible from the margins of society. Because when the poor read the Bible, when the incarcerated read the Bible, when black Americans read the Bible, when the oppressed read the Bible, uh, when, the, when the disabled read the Bible, when we read the scripture from the margins, very different interpretations come, come to fore. And in many ways, those new interpretations, those new lenses out of the prison uh, were good medicine for my heart. So one story came early out there where I had been, again, in a faith struggle 
And so I was a part of that deconstruction. That's a big word out there right now. I was kind of deconstructing my faith, asking a lot of questions, had a lot of doubts. So when I was leading a study on the Psalms out there, I thought, you know what I'll do is I will really lean into the lament Psalms because I figured prison's a very dark and sad place. Who better than the incarcerated to enjoy a good study of the lament Psalms? So, so they, you know, there's a cry out, Lord, where are you in all of this? you know, tragedy and all of this darkness. And so I, I start into it. Like I get out there and I'm leading my first study on the Lament Psalms and I'm working through all of those themes, right? It's where is God? Has God abandoned us? Crying out, lament, grief, all the things. And about halfway through the study, they just stopped me. And they said, um, hey, uh, we get it. Like we prison is dark. <laughs> Life is hard. We don't need you to come out here and give us a study about how horrible our lives are. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, so, like, what do you want me to talk about that? And they go, well, we need like a little bit of hope. And at that time in my life, I was like, well, I don't really do hope. Like, hope isn't anything I do. Uh, I haven't felt hope in a long time, you know? And they're like, well, that's what we need. Like, we don't need to come in here and just sit in the ashes. We sit in the ashes every day. Uh, we want to see a silver lining. We want to know there's hope. We want to we want to know our lives still matter. And so a text that has become really important for us out of the prison is Ezekiel 38, the Valley of Dry Bones, where you know the prophet stands in the Valley of Dry Bones. Um, right in the middle of all that desolation and all that deadness, right? There's no hope, no potential. Everything is reached the dead end, right? We are stuck. And as he surveys the Valley of Dry Bones, the, the voice of the Lord speaks to the prophet and says, son of man, can these bones live again? And that's the question we kind of keep coming back to in the prison. Can these bones live again? Can your life, even if you have a lifetime sentence without parole, like is your life still worth living do you still matter um, is god still with you and and the answer comes the prophet says i don't know only you know and then he says prophesy over the bones and god breathes life back into them again and so i i feel like that's what i do every week at the prison i stand in a prison in a valley of dry bones prophesying over the bones um, that you can live again and and, and that habit of drawing my attention to those themes in scripture over and over and over again, where, where my, my tendency had been to be drawn to these other parts of scripture, like the lament Psalms, that the men have pointed me towards hope. And because I'm out there as a prophet of hope, that is just, that was good medicine for me. Um, and they demanded that of me. And, and that helped me during a season where I was, where I was struggling. So it's a good example of how they saved me, but it's also a good example of how their perspective on the Bible pointed my mind and my heart in a very different direction than I would normally have done. So, so, so it's kind of, kind of a practical question around that. For whatever reason, let's say somebody goes to, you know, they get they get motivated, we get excited, we want to do something good, especially if we're in a, a position of, of, of privilege or we're not, obviously not in, incarcerated. And then we go to go do that. It reminds me of a certain anecdotal stories you hear from people. And then as you, sounds great. And you pull into the parking lot and you're walking up and all of a sudden it starts to get very different and it becomes, you know, very process oriented. It's a world you're not familiar with and it becomes very, can you help us kind of like at what, 
what helps you kind of get past that? Oh my gosh, this is not familiar. This is awful. This is not where you're now in that lamenting world that they're used to. You know, like, no, this is really prison. What what's helped you, I guess, become comfortable with that, knowing that you can get to walk out and that you can still go in that area and be and be authentic and true with these guys? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a good question. I don't know if there's like a, like a, a trick or a tip. I mean, I think a lot of these, whenever we're crossing over into very different social locations, they, they can't ever really be one-off situations. I don't think we learn much. I think a lot of what we, the way I describe a lot of what I do at prison ministry or in ministries at my church where we're walking alongside um, homeless or very poor populations, I often would use the word competency and that you're trying to acquire kind of a cultural competency for that new social location. And competencies aren't acquired by by a one-off service project. You like you go out to a prison, visit it, and it's very uncomfortable, very different, but you're still kind of like a bit of a tourist mode there where you can go down a soup kitchen, serve a meal at the Salvation Army, like at Thanksgiving, and leave, right? And never really have tried to have a conversation across a socioeconomic barrier. And so I, I really think competencies, comfortability, non-anxious presence, um, learning how, learning what that worldview is as, as a, being a student of that location is really only acquired through just fidelity, continuing to show up in those spaces repeatedly. So I often just describe prison ministry as a ministry of fidelity. It is the showing up again and again and again in a humble posture of learning that eventually acquire these competencies, cultural competencies, and it becomes more familiar. You become habituated. Yeah, I don't know. And I don't know a quick way around that. I just ask people to be patient with themselves because a lot of people will hear me describe like the ministries I'm a part of and they'll go like, I want to come because I might tell a very amazing story. And, and I think that's one of the downsides of public speaking and writing books is because you kind of curate the stories, the high impact stories from those experiences. And I share them in books or I share them in a talk and people's hearts are moved by these experiences. But the reality is week in, week out, there's not a whole lot exciting going on. And you only get to see the magic if you're there over time. And, and so I would just say to people that if they do show up in the parking lot and they are anxious, that they just are generous with themselves and self-compassion with themselves, that that anxiety is just what it's going to feel like for a season, but to keep coming back. Don't let the anxiety dictate and, and say, well, that was just hard or awkward or unproductive, and I got nothing out of it, and I didn't seem to help anybody, so I guess I won't do it anymore. Just know that that's going to happen and, and and keep coming back. Treat these as ministries of fidelity. Show up in a different social location and keep showing up. But do it in a humble posture, trying to be a student. So in that same context, once you get there, uh, it seems there's this kind of this uh, paradox of wanting them to know that you care. It's almost like an us and them kind of thing with the prisoners. And, you know, uh, and how how do you really... I don't want to say gain their respect, but how do you connect with them? How do you, how do you get them to understand that you're in earnest? And it may be even, uh, you know, this kind of this, the road to hell is paved with good intentions where you want to go in there and help. And you think you have all these answers and you have this, like you said, you have this amazing story to tell people. So you want to go create your own amazing story. So you can go off and tell the world what kind of great work you've done when it isn't quite that romantic. 
And then I, I think about uh, like mission trips kind of reminds me of mission trips where it's like to take the selfie that you did this one thing one day and help this one person kind of like, oh, look at me and what I've done and all this amazingness. And the, the, the people get it. They're like, yeah, I know you're here to do a picture. Or you're here to kind of check a, a personal box. How, how have you seen that kind of navigate? And then how is the, I guess, back to the gospel a little bit from a, you know, are there certain aspects of that that, you, that has helped you kind of navigate that as well or that they pull out, that they understand? Can, asking them to be graceful seems odd in that context in some ways because you're coming in with such a different context. But, I mean, are they showing, are they understanding that? And is that what allows that to kind of happen and that gave you that space? It kind of connects back to what I was saying. So my the ministry of fidelity is obviously helping me acquire competencies, but the ministry of fidelity is also demonstrating them a degree of, uh, trustworthiness and commitment. And so uh, that's, that is another desolation that you have to be aware of. If you're going into populations that felt like they're like do-gooders have come in and they've instrumentalized this, this relationship, that the relationship is being sought out for their own moral or virtue signaling project that you are going to, yes, encounter some skepticism in those spaces. And you should expect it and shouldn't be surprised by it. But if you are faithful and they watch you over a long term and they see that you are there for them and that you aren't instrumentalizing it, then eventually trust can be won. So that, I think that's another thing that we can have false expectations. It's not we have false expectations that somehow it's going to go amazing. It'll be high impact. I'll be non-anxious. Like, um, no, you're probably going to be anxious. It's going to be awkward. And probably nothing will happen. But the other thing is we have this expectation that they will receive me with full trust and confidence. But instead, you experience a little bit of hesitancy or suspicion. All of that's normal and to be expected, which is why a one-off, short-term kind of tourism service project mentality or approach isn't going to really get you to the far side where a real relationship can emerge but it's possible but you just got to make it a, a commitment kind of the other half of this if you will are the application side in a sense so with your experience of prison ministry then as you go into your own congregation it's more it isn't a bunch of people in the prison this is a sunday crowd at highland and and you're and you start talking about interpretation and translation and application of this verse uh is there anything that you've seen that can help kind of continue to bring this message to to more people on kind of your our end if you will versus what i mean by that is you know once you see that you know it's, it's, it's kind of that you can't unsee it you kind of see this context of it and then you see hey let me bring this let me let me bring this message not only to the now i can take the prison and bring it to my fellow you know person at ACU or first or fellow member of the congregation who has no idea really. And, and how do you kind of navigate that in terms of bringing that message into them and helping them understand what else it could mean? Yeah, no, I mean, I think there's a couple things I can say there. Um, you know, one is obviously there, there is sharing the lessons that I learned, I've learned out at the prison, the way they read scripture and the things that they call to mind. And then, and then bringing the fruits of that into um, let's say just a local church context. So, so for example, one of the things I've taken from the prison that I've brought into my Bible class at church, I teach an adult faith class at church, is where I'll say, hey, you know, one of the things that really helped me out at the prison is that 
I liked being in a place where the gospel mattered, mm-hmm. that the gospel was a matter of life and death, because the gospel, faith in God, God's support, God's Holy Spirit is what gets them through the day. And so out of the prison, they don't have the privilege or the luxury to kind of just you know, like, well, maybe I believe this, maybe I don't believe this. You know, maybe I, you know, I like the worship service or I don't like the worship service or I like the sermon or I don't like the sermon. You know, there is our our kind of material privilege allows us to treat the gospel as an object that can be scrutinized and studied, you know, and we can take it or we can leave it because I can walk off from church. I can stop believing in God, but I got my comfortable house, my comfortable job, and my lovely family. So I don't, in a sense, need it at some deep existential level. But out the prison, where the stakes are much higher, the gospel is what gets them through. And so I've, I've shared that in my class. Like, I'll take the fruits of that. Hey, there is something about the gospel that matters. You might not be able to see it, like Jesus said, right? It's hard for a rich person to get into heaven. And I think Jesus is saying that because... Uh, it's not that wealthy people are corrupt. I think he's saying your wealth can insulate you and blind you to your deep neediness. And when you're living in prison or you're living in poverty, your your neediness is a daily reality. And so you're more able to step into a posture of humble dependence where wealthy people don't need to be dependent on anybody. And because of that, their their relative independence and autonomy certain spiritual realities are more difficult for them to see. So that's just one example of how I've kind of taken lessons that I've learned about how to read scripture and think about the, the gospel and bring it into an, uh, to a very different social location um, uh, and how it might preach perhaps in that space. And it makes me think of uh, the book that actually brought me to the, the gospel or the, to my more intense space with his Ecclesiastes. And it's just this, because then I think about a conversation I was actually having today where, where I, I wonder socially we've seen, I don't want to say pushback, but definitely some, whether it's the great resignation currently in terms of jobs, whether it's a, real, a result of COVID kind of making people kind of double check, but they're, what they're doing and go, wait, I don't really want to be this materialistic rich, you know, pursuing this almighty dollar because that, that has its own, Right. It's its own prison, if you will. Right. The prison of debt, the prison of of just this career, this, you know, constantly having to feed the beast. And that's something that I definitely empathize and mentioned this before. If, and if that resonates with you around like, OK, yeah, well, you can be a rich prisoner. It is closer to be to God. You can be closer to God in prison than you can be on a beach, you know, in Jamaica with, a, you know, the, the best room in the house. And, and I get that. But then it's like, OK, but does that, <laughs> but does that mean I don't know if I'm going to sign up to go to prison? you know, to make, to kind of get that. And so how do you balance, or from a personal level, like how would you balance? Because uh, it seems like there's a gift, there's a blessing, the blessed are the meek makes me think of that, you know, that that aspect of being in prison, but that doesn't necessarily mean I want to go that far down the road. And is that selfish or is that? No, I think it makes, I mean, again, it's, it's one of the things that I would highlight um, given your podcast is the Bible sounds differently in different social locations. So let me go back to my earlier example. So I went out to the prison trying to do a study about the lament psalms, and they don't want me to do the lament psalms. They want me to do Ezekiel's Valley of Dry Bones. They want me to do a hermeneutics of hope, right? Not lament. But when I am sitting in a 
um, kind of middle class to upper class suburban church context, then a, then a study of Ecclesiastes makes sense for them because they need a message to not rely on all of this human striving. They like they need that message of Ecclesiastes says we are chasing wealth, we're chasing all of these things, and Ecclesiastes preaches this message of vanity of vanities, you know, um, and, and so. I might not do Ecclesiastes out of the prison because they're already at the bottom. And so they need the Valley of Dry Bones message. But when I'm out with an affluent audience, then Ecclesiastes is the book that comes off the shelf to preach at it. So I really do think um, a lot of what we do with scripture, whether or not it's going to sound, whether it's good medicine uh, or not, depends on social location. For example, one of the reasons why I think it's important to do lament in like a wealthy context is because the people, the winners of society, right? The people that are winning socioeconomically maybe don't need to be overly triumphalistic. I mean, because that could be kind of obscene if you're like totally winning and you're like, praise God. Like, so you have this kind of prosperity gospel thing going on and you're winning. Well, it's kind of like you're just tooting your own horn. And so it's probably good for privileged and wealthy people to spend time with the desolations of Scripture, to draw their hearts and minds to the margins and to the places where people are less fortunate. So the lament would be good medicine for the wealthy to draw, okay, um, and but maybe not so much for the people who are suffering. They need hope. And so it just really depends. So I really do think the people need to use scripture as kind of soul medicine. Like, what does this, what does this group in front of me uh, need? And that's kind of like where you see James Cone's work. Like, what, what did somebody on the margins, what do they need to hear? What's good news to them? So that's one of the things I often will ask myself from an interpretive perspective is, what would be good news to the person standing right in front of me and, and using their perspective as a, as a lens on how the gospel is going to sound to them? Because it's going to sound different in a prison. It's going to sound different in a soup kitchen. It's going to sound different in a corporate boardroom. It's going to come differently. And sometimes it'll come as uh, grace and sometimes it'll come as stinging prophetic rebuke. I mean, the, 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 the voice of the Lord will come at us a very different ways depending on where we stand and so and so as i mentioned i'd love to we could still go on that road for a long time but I, I kind of feel like it's a good place to switch uh into the other aspect that i was wanting to talk to you about you and i share a common connection around the churches of christ which is a denomination even though if you know anything about it it's a non-denomination or undenominational kind of uh, uh historical perspective in terms of the way people of our of our ilk if you will uh, kind of describe themselves uh, but unlike like Lutheran or Church of England or any of the rest, of, it's not a formal organization around a denomination. So you're kind of off. You have this, but there are some parameters, and that were that were a result of people reading something and deciding. I think this means this, especially for corporate worship, which you hear all the time. Especially in this, like from a corporate standpoint, this is how we do it. This is how we show up. This is the way. It doesn't say to do this, says to do this. And so it becomes almost an instruction manual. And I think one of the big knocks, just to give some preference or some reference to the uh, to the to the listeners, is that uh, for this particular denomination, if you will, the 
It's kind of the things it's known for. One is full immersion baptism is a is a salvation issue, and these are all kind of salvation issue. Um, and there's different ways of doing things, but but historically, and you correct if I'm wrong, but it, it it's like, hey, if you're not fully immersed, this is kind of one of the things it's known for. Not all of them, but it's kind of one of those preferences. Uh, instruments uh, on stage during a, a worship service during church that you're not supposed to have instruments of any kind. It's all a cappella in terms of worship. And then uh, there's some things around the gender side in terms of women leading in any way, shape, or form, whether it's a, a class or something like that. So all that to be said, this kind of the it's kind of this history of it, uh, even though it's a relatively brief history around the U.S., even though I, I've been told by many people that I know that uh, are from the Church of Christ that it was no, it was formed you know, when, when Peter on the rock, like the church, it's the church of Christ. That's why it's not a denomination because it's the, it is the denomination and we got it all figured out. All that said that my, our personal church is going through a massive change and trying to figure out what to do from an identity standpoint. These organizations with the way that the Catholic church or Lutheran or CV, they've determined over a period of time, kind of what the parameters are to run a functional organizational group that that is you know the worshiping body and make sure things gets gets done in the right you know quote unquote the right the right way can you tell us a little bit about your uh just kind of your your thoughts on that interpretation from an, what when organizations start to give themselves parameters outside of people you know what good bad the ugly of that and then maybe we can dive into a little bit more of like another like what are we actually my big question around that would be as i mentioned earlier is are we trying to save you know, like a denomination, are we trying to say, like, is it our church's job to save the quote unquote church of Christ way? Or is it to become where I struggle is I feel like it's more uh, like we should be following the way, like that's it, like whatever that looks like. And so, but it's not always that easy, especially with history and organizations and people and what they, what they were, what they are fond of. Yeah. Well, that's a big question. So <laughs> let, let, let me say a few things about kind of her, uh, biblical interpretation in um, non-denominational, largely low church Protestant. By low church Protestant, I don't mean mainline like Presbyterians or Methodists or Episcopalians, but like your Baptists, your Church of Christ, your Bible churches. That's kind of where that those are our people. One of the things that that at least in the Churches of Christ that we we kind of kept um, without writing any sort of creeds down. And typically, the the ancient creeds or statements of faith or state confessional statements. Uh, or books of discipline ha have typically bound together denominational movements. They they wrote things down, and they used those things. And, and they might need to get together and revisit some of those things occasionally, or vote on those things. But these written documents and agreements that create the glue that holds them together. But when you have a non-denominational church like the Churches of Christ, there isn't there isn't anything written down, and we just go to what's called sola scriptura, scripture alone, right? The Bible itself will be what is written down. But the trouble is with that is like you're discovering your church is that the Bible requires interpretation. You know, if you hand two people two Bibles, they're not going to come to any sort of agreement, um, and that's. Because no, no church agrees on all of the things. People just put it together differently. And so I do think that moment of interpretation is kind of a loss of a childlike na naivete. The Church of Christ, I think, had a childlike naivete because we, we had convinced ourselves that we agreed because Scripture was clear. But what really was happening is we all just shared an implicit, unconscious way of reading scripture. 
Um, what kept us together wasn't that the Bible was crystal clear. It's 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 not always. What kept us together is we sh- we had a shared history and culture. So what bound the churches of Christ together was a culture, and it was a and it was an interpretive culture. But the minute we we step out of that childlike naivete into kind of a interpretive self awareness, that we begin to to note this is like metacognition. We begin to notice what we're doing with the Bible. Suddenly, we're now at like a hermeneutical threshold. Okay, so now we realize we're interpreting, and the minute you realize you're interpreting, the anxiety goes through the roof because there is no umpire telling us, denominationally speaking whose interpretation is correct or not. And so we often want to retreat back in to the naivete, to the childlike claim that scripture is just very clear and pretend that this is all just about obeying or disobeying the clear rule of scripture. Like we we want to deny the hermeneutical awareness because if you admit the hermeneutical awareness that we are actually in the pews interpreting at all, then suddenly all bets are off. And we do see, as we would say, the slippery slope, like what, what is going to regulate these interpretations? Like, like who's going to say whether an interpretation on women or baptism, same-sex marriage, all the hot button issues, who's going to say when a given interpretation is too far out of bounds? And when a church, and when you have a denomination like ours, there is no pope, there is no conference that meets annually, and there's no written confession, then we're looking at a big, wide open, vast vista of possibilities. And some of those are pretty scary because I think because of that anxiety, we want, we want to back up into that belief, that naive belief that, well, we're not interpreting, we're just obeying the Lord. And so, uh, that to me is one of the biggest fights that I've noticed in the Church of Christ are those who want to come deny the even that the the reality that they are even interpreting. So they will just kind of deny that they are actually an interpreter of Scripture. They're just obeying the plain sense of the text, right? They have this very literalist, plain sense reading. And then because when you try to say, well, no, like you are actually privileging certain texts, you are actually elevating certain meanings over others certain texts are more important for you and some are less you know you're picking and choosing a little bit here the minute you try to point that out you're going to get a strong anxiety response from people because if you admit that if i step into that conversation and admit that i i'm actually interpreting with no umpire in sight then it does seem like all bets are off and we're not going to be able to figure out anything and and so I think to me that is kind of what's going on in the Church of Christ right now. This kind of there's two camps in the pews: those who deny they're doing any interpreting at all, and frame all the discussions as obeying or disobeying the plain sense of Scripture, and those who have stepped away from that posture of innocence into kind of a mature hermeneutical self-awareness. And, and and who are trying to admit that they are interpreting, but then are trying to figure out how what's the best, most faithful way to do that without like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. To me, that's the fight that's occurring uh, in our denomination right now. And, and to get some context on that as well for the listeners, I remember when I was told 
the reason we didn't have uh, instruments on stage was that the, it, the Bible doesn't say that you should, and so it's silent. And so where the Bible is silent, we're silent. So we, it didn't say that we couldn't, but it didn't say that we could. And so that was the impetus for the entire, which to me, which to me, and I think a lot of people is like, well, that's not necessarily, that's not as clear as what we would think is clear. And then I, would, I can remember Googling, or not Googling, but like searching my app at the time, and for the old, especially the Old Testament, like flutes and lyres and harps. And every time God shows up, there's instruments in front of him. And I'm thinking, okay, well, and then, so it's hard to kind of tie that. But even if this is for me, you know, 16, 17 years ago, but I didn't, that wasn't a hill I was going to die on in terms of like, I was just trying to get started, trying to figure all this stuff out. And so I, you kind of, and it goes back to some of the other parts of the guy like, you know, don't, don't push your, you know, don't push your brother and don't, don't, you know, don't force certain things. And so you don't want to placate, but it's like, you also don't want to, so there's also that our idea of grace and challenge and that I can make, especially if they're, you know, been around for a while and a lot of, you know, they, this is their church. I don't want to create some such a discomfort that people like leave and churches split, which is always the big kind of the over thing that goes over in our heads. It, it's going to cause somebody goes up. Oh, I don't want to do that that way anymore. We're going to go over here and, you know, recreate something. But in the, in the frame of that, like in terms of, um, I, I guess, I guess advice is the best way I could put it, but advice around, you know, talking to people that, that have grown up thinking that's the way like women shouldn't be on stage, shouldn't be any instruments. Uh, have you seen anything? Uh, what, what, how do you approach that in terms of people and ch helping challenge that? Well, I mean, I think like our church just went through a big gender discernment. And, and so I'm an elder I'm at our church and was in front of the congregation once or twice to try to talk about some of the hermeneutical changes. Cause we were changing our home hermeneutic. And I was trying to explain that to the church. I was saying, these scriptures used to be kind of the lens that we read, and now we're going to read the scripture through these other. We're not throwing scripture out. You read scripture through scripture. Certain verses regulate how you read other verses. And, and, and so you are changing how you read scripture through scripture. It's not getting rid of scripture. It's just certain verses are cooling and other becoming hot so you can think of the temperature changing across right these are our hot scriptures our important ones and these are going to be less emphasized everybody has kind of a heat map of the bible and we're just changing that heat map a little bit um, that helps a little bit to kind of see that we're not we're, we're not throwing the, the scripture away but we are just changing how we and, and this is biblical right you know um, Jesus says there are greatest commandments, right? He, he says, these are hot spots. These are the greatest commandments. And he says, these are the weightier matters of the law. And there's, you know, not, he's not saying don't do the little things, but these are weightier. So there's greater commandments. There are weightier. Paul in the epistle says, I delivered to you the things of first importance. So some things are more important. Some are less. So importance, greater, weightier. That's what I'm talking about. The heat map. What is heavier, weightier, more important? And that can change for a church as we interpret differently. But it's not throwing the Bible away. I'm not disobeying the Lord as much as changing what I consider to be a weightier reading. The other thing I would say that really sits at the heart of all of this is just none of this is really about the Bible. All of this has to do with your fundamental view of God. The only reason interpretation and hermeneutics is fraught and conflictual 
is because in the background is a view of God that says, if you get it wrong, then like you're judged, you're going to hell, you're damned. And until you get that view of God corrected, you just really can't have a, a non-anxious conversation about interpretation. Because, because if your view of God behind it is that God is a kind of a wrathful deity that's just waiting for your church to screw this up, okay? You know, then, then, then all of a sudden, the conversation about hermeneutics and interpretation becomes like a high stakes game. And not just high stakes, the greatest stakes. Everything is at stake. And how can you have a non-anxious conversation when like everybody's soul is at stake, right? Everything is in jeopardy. And, and, and so I said that to my church during that season. I said, we have to trust that God has our back. And that even if we don't get this right, you know, even if we, we come up with the wrong interpretation and we get to heaven and say, and God says, hey, you know, I, I, you, got, you got it wrong, you know. I don't like guitars. Maybe he has an opinion about that. You know, he goes, but hey, I love the music. What's fascinating to me about doctrine and morality is like we're more than willing for God to forgive our moral failures. But somehow we frame doctrinal failures as unforgivable. Salvation. Like if you get a yeah, yeah if you if you get a doctrine wrong, you're damned. If you have a moral failure, you know, then God can forgive you for those, but he will never, he won't forgive you for making a hermeneutical mistake. You know, it's almost like he's very rigid on that. So all that to say is, I, I think our deepest questions aren't really about what the scriptures say. I think the deeper question is, is God for you or against you? And if you don't think God is for you, even in your doctrinal errors, then I, I don't know how you can have a non-anxious conversation about interpretation. So to that, if you would wrap this up for us a little bit, um, can I ask you for an anecdotal, like your own personal, like I'm guessing somewhere along the lines, you had maybe a hard line stance around something like that, whether it's maybe it was acapella music or whatever that you kind of started with and that you did this 180 on. And can you take us a little bit down that, that journey on something that, that where you went one way and that you kind of personally went through this and tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think my my earliest faith crisis um, growing up conservative Church of Christ or like on like um, doctrines about hell. And I, I was taught, you know, the, I mean, the Bible says eternal punishment, he, you know, psychologically and emotionally and intellectually. So I had multiple objections. Some of them were just intellectual. Like, I just can't believe such a thing. It just didn't make any sense to me. But there was also an emotional re recoiling of a vision of people being tortured. Like I couldn't, how could I rest in heaven knowing that this was going on? So I, I and then I had ethical questions. Like how can I see God as loving? Like so I had ethical concerns. I had uh, affectional concerns. I had intellectual concerns. And yet I was given a hermeneutic that said, no, this is the way, this is the way you read the Bible. And so early in college, you know, I, I um, shared some of those concerns um, with a trusted faculty member. 
at the Church of Christ school I was going to. And they said, well, you know, you know that there's other ways to read those texts. And I was like, what? Really? Huh? Like, like it just says eternal punishment. How can you read it differently? And they gave me Edward Fudge's book on the fire that consumes. And Edward Fudge um, is a Church of Christ guy, but he, he kind of like wrote the book on a view called annihilationalism, um, which is the idea that souls aren't tortured in the eternal fire. They are consumed. So it's a view that the, the, the lost are just um, they cease to exist. They're not tortured for eternity. They just cease to exist. That's God's judgment. The sec- As Jesus says, don't fear the one that can you know destroy the body but destroy the, the one that can destroy both body and soul in hell. You know, he can destroy the whole thing. And so that was Fudge's argument. Now, to be clear, I'm not trying to get your go down a rabbit hole on beliefs about hell. What I'm pointing to is a moment in my own life where I was shown another way of reading those texts. And that opened up, a like, that was huge for me. I was like, well, I didn't even know that was impossible. And and uh, to interpret it, right? And does hell, does eternity, does the word eternal mean eternal? And there's a whole conversation about that. And so that to me was probably my first early awakening into oh, things that I took to be plain are much more open to interpretation, and that some very smart Christians from the very early church fathers till today have thought these things. And that took me out to a wider vista of exploring, you know, the scripture and seeing it as a kind of a, and now I love exploring all of these different ways of thinking from the atonement to, to baptism, to hell, to all the things and learning more about all of these different interpretive things in a non-anxious way. That was critical too, kind of coming to a conviction that no matter where I landed on a lot of these contentious issues, that God is going to look at me at the end of time and say, you know, well done, good and faithful servant. Like, I don't agree with everything that you thought down there, but you were you were using you were trying to love me with all your heart, soul, and mind. And that was an interesting journey, a lot of false turns and dead ends. But you were you were seeking me. You never stopped seeking me. And I think that's the thing that I would like to say to people as they open up that hermeneutical Pandora's box. The anxiety about like, uh oh, just keep seeking the Lord with your mind. That's the key, I think, that we can trust that if we do that with good faith, that God will meet us at the end. Well, as asked, received, thank you for that way to send us off. And it makes me think of uh, something I heard a gentleman say the other day that, you know, slow is the fastest way and that uh, there is no easy answer to any of this. There is no, you know, definite, being definitive is just not part of it, but trust in the process and you're going to be okay so uh to that thank you so much richard for, for coming on and taking the time you're always very gracious to the show and to everybody out there and appreciate your wisdom and, and just your time sean thank you it was a lovely conversation and, and with that as we wrap this up uh, obviously we're very interested to hear what you have to say we've gotten uh feedback already this is being recorded after our first uh, episode with adam drops and already getting some very interesting feedback, please let us know how we're doing uh, and what this means to you. And is it hitting the, 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 the places we hope it does in your heart, in your mind, in your soul, and it is opening up uh, a path for you to go through and we can be a part of that journey, part of that travel, being a fellow traveler with you. And so with that, thanks. Thanks everybody for letting us do this. Thanks Stephen for opening the door for this. 
and uh, looking forward to the next series. Everybody take care. God bless. Thank you for listening. Thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune and to Chris Marchand for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be good or useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patreon page or leave a good review on whichever podcast platform you use to listen. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com.